Good morning. Thank you for joining Dr. Alet's Optimizing Brains webinar. Today we are going to be going over the snapshot of anxiety assessment. This information is intended for educational purposes and is not intended to be medical advice for specific cases in any way. So uh, what are we going to do today? We're going to go through the five parts of um, what I put in the assessment and uh, and then to see if you think this is helpful, if I've missed anything. It's not like this is completely brand new to me. Basically, what I did is I put what I do with my patients into a form. And so this is, this is how I normally assess my patients for anxiety. Um, the piece that's missing out of this questionnaire is what is happening in their relationships. And since most most people are therapists in this group and quite honestly I would do a different questionnaire and we can talk a little bit about that in terms of relationship but this is really just focusing on what's happening with the mind the brain and the body so of course I started off with the GAD7 and hopefully you're all familiar with the GAD7 what and it, this is the standard medical assessment these days I have always found the GAD-7 to be really um, too general, to be really helpful um, because um, feeling anxious or on edge, that could be because you're not eating. That could be because, you know, you're, you're living with a bear in your house. I mean, there's lots of different reasons that drive that. And then not being able to relax, uh, being restless, hard to sit still, becoming easily annoyed and irritable, uh, having a feeling that something awful might happen. Th those can all be because somebody's gone too long without a meal or not having um, a, the right food stuff, particularly protein and mostly carbohydrates. And so, I, you know, it's... To me, what the GAD-7 is, is measuring is that there's adrenaline in, in the system. So uh, to sort of suss out the details of that, uh, I created part two. Well, I guess I should ask, is there any questions about the GAD-7 before we move on, or statements, or did I just defend somebody because they love the GAD-7 and I'm not, I'm not heavily fond of it? There's one comment um, just agreeing oh. that it's pretty vague. It's pretty vague, yeah. Mm -hmm. And even patients think it's pretty vague. For a while I was like, I'm going to be a good clinician and everybody's going to come in and we're going to do the GAD7 and the, and the PHQ9 and I was just like, it's easier to talk to them. But hopefully in, in this context, it, this will be, it's lengthier, but hopefully you're going to get more information out of it. So, so the second part, I... I do a lot of this when somebody comes in is that I try and kind of clump uh, symptoms into is this a mind thing, is this a brain thing, or is this a body thing? Uh, because if it's all in the mind or all in the brain and there are no body symptoms, then really I want them in a, in a therapist's office, which happens occasionally, but, but often I'm cleaning up the body symptoms and then the brain and mind symptoms are less acute and then a therapist is really helpful to clean those up that's a more common scenario and so uh, how this is used is if somebody 
is anything anything on the line, they check the box. So they may not have suicidal thoughts or be fear of, of dying, but they are anxious or depressed or crying all the time. So you, they just check the box. Like they get one point for that. Negative, irritable, controlling, defense, defensive rage, you know, all of these things. Like if it's just one of them, they can check the box. And the same with the brain symptoms. And the one I really catch for the brain symptoms is doing old behaviors you don't want to do, such as eating sugar, drinking alcohol, or other addictive substances. That is a really clear sign. When, so, when a, somebody go, decides that they're going to give up alcohol or give up sugar or whatever, and they, they make a strong commitment to that, and then, and then they violate that. They go to the grocery store, they're they're low in blood sugar or there or something really horrible happened that day and they go back to drinking that tells me that the lizard brain is running the show and the prefrontal cortex is not and to me the mind is a little bit of the prefrontal cortex sort of managing and damping down things it's not a clear line but this is just the buckets that i put things into this is, I think, more useful, um, is having people go through the body symptoms and check off what applies to them. Because I've had women come into my office who, you know, have done a lot of therapy, and they will describe that they will be sitting on the couch, having, watching a comedy show, like there's nothing triggering going on, and they will start to have palpitations and get shaky and get agitated and then get mad at the dog for just being a dog and get a little vertigo and nausea and and you know this is the main thing that they are you know everything else is kind of tapped down in their lives and there are these moments where they just kind of lose it and there's no real reason for it and it's often when they're three, four, five hours away from food. And, um, and so this is hypoglycemia, not anxiety. And having people m distinguish that is helpful. So that was part two. Part three is uh, going through the list of symptoms that happen when the physiology of anxiety is in a room. So if you have a lot of adrenaline board on a regular basis, you tend to be more fatigued and more fatigued in the afternoon. And I guess I should say that to me, hypoglycemia and having adrenaline on board are all, there's a high degree of overlap. They're not exactly the same thing, but, but the, they, they have the same impact on the body. And so even if somebody's well-fed and they're eating regularly and for instance uh, I had one patient who had a minor car fender bender so she got this big adrenaline burst and for the rest of the afternoon like she got fatigued and she was moody and she her thoughts were a little confused and she had a hard time sleeping even though it was a very contained burst of adrenaline the effects the short-term effects can escalate into the body and, uh, and will just happen for a day. But if you're doing that day after day after day, these become companions day after day after day. Hopefully that makes sense to people. So then I'm screening for fatigue. Um, we're back to the moodiness because I want that on, on, on this as well. 
early morning waking for two hours, that's usually adrenaline being released and your brain waking up and going, oh, but we have to think about all the things that are going on. Ah. Or the inability to wake up in the morning. Some people are so low in glucose that they, they're not functional in the morning. PTSD nightmares are almost always hypoglycemia. And if I can control the hypoglycemia, I, the nightmares are a lot better. Uh, brain fog, people are talking about that. Physical pain when there's adrenaline in the system will go up. ADHD symptoms. In the last couple of years, I've seen a lot I've been able, able to identify that irritable bowel syndrome and a lot of um, bowel problems uh, are related to that the, because people don't, part of it is that they don't eat. Some people are getting better about con, uh, what kind of carbohydrates they eat and then they go and binge on something really sweet and, uh, which, and, and so the bacteria in their gut are like, Ooh, we just got funded and so we're going to replicate and they get all sorts of digestive symptoms. Worry about weight gain, I include in this because the adrenaline puts a lot of distortions into how our body looks and of course we will gain weight if we think that we're under threat. Sugar and carbs are such a great solution to being under threat or stressed and then worry about alcohol or pot use. Of course, in Washington, particularly, uh, I assume also in Colorado, because of the deregulation of pot, there's a lot more use of that over alcohol, and so I'm screaming for both. Any questions about part three, or is it helpful? Do you think that the, this is too much? There's some comments that it's helpful. Okay, because part of the reason why, I guess I should have said earlier, part of the reason how I see this assessment being helpful is that you provide it early on in treatment or when it becomes appropriate and then could do the three days of protein if you're familiar with that tool that I use. But this would also, if you work on the polyvagal theory or whatever approach you have, if you bring down the physical symptoms and, you know, after a period of time, give it back to them and say, is this better? Because one of the things that I find as a clinician is the, one of the most important things that I do is to help people track that symptoms are getting better. Because the classic is always migraines, but I see this all the time with anxiety and depression. If you have somebody come in and they're reporting nearly every day, nearly every day, nearly every day for most of these symptoms, and then it moves down to some days, they actually whine more <laughs> because, and, you, and, and I understand this particularly, the, I'll use the migraine example just because it's, it's the same but different. So if somebody's coming in and they're having migraines four or five days a week, I mean, that is just completely completely disabling. And if the what we do to bring down the migraines drops it to one day a week, they actually will be much louder about the migraines because when you have migraines nearly every day, your life is really small. And as that loosens up, or even once a month, as that loosens up, the anxiety or the migraine really affect what you've committed to and they get there's more like this isn't getting better 
both with anxiety and migraines, people just want it to go away completely. And if it's not completely away, they sometimes get frustrated and depressed and, and stop using the tools they have. And so that's what, part of why I think it's important to have a stronger tool than the GAD-7 so that people can really see where they've made progress. And sometimes they'll use different tools. So like the tool for body symptoms may be eating regularly, but they may have to use mindfulness tools or other tools because, because they have a, a history of child abuse or rape or you know something. And so it comes up and they have these stories they have to use other tools for. And being clear what symptoms are improving and then what helps those symptoms, those particular symptoms, I think is really important. And having a clear early assessment so that they can see what changes, what changes what, what the sort of the mechanisms are for them is really helpful in terms of a committed therapy um, and progress. Then uh, we add it all up. So, I particularly find questions one, four, five, and six on the GAD7 related to hypoglycemia, and so whatever their score for those four are, go in the box. Then each box for the mind, brain, body, they add that in, and then the global symptoms. And so there, then your, there's your total score. I haven't standardized this in terms of what's high or low. I'm not using this as like a diagnostic for insurance purposes. This, this is really to do experiments for the individual to have choice in their lives and then how their symptoms are presenting. Does that make sense to people? Yes. Any comments about these four parts? Uh, one participant said a little bit earlier about part three that a lot of those symptoms are what they've heard from a lot of their clients. The, the detail in that list was helpful. And it's really helpful for them to know that all of these things actually fall under the same umbrella for me, which is hypoglycemia. Mm-hmm. And not that they're going to 100% get better, but I, you know, regularly I see 30% better. And so what I'm hoping is that uh, when you use this assessment and have the anxiety assessment score, that whatever their score is, that, that you know, there's at least a 15%, if not a 30% improvement. Because I, I talk to a lot of mental health professionals and they say to me, this is part of what's driving me to create this is, One of the most common comments is, I heard your seminar on protein, it really helped my life. I give it to my patients, they regularly say that it helps their lives and they won't commit to it. So I noodle on like, well, why why are they not committing to it? And I think that part of it is that as a mental health professional or a coach or an executive, that you're managing a lot of other things. And so it, it gets lost what really improved. They just remember that they felt better, but the cost of organizing food and changing their behavior is, is high. And so, you know, having something that, you know, quite honestly, uh, and the, this is one of the longer projects that I, I'm hoping to do, you know, the studies on what SSRIs and SSNRIs and all that help anxiety. So what pills 
help anxiety. I mean, benzos always help anxiety, but we don't want to go there. But the non-addictive, dependent-forming medications, you know, you're getting at best a 10% improvement for the population. Depression, there's that you can get up to 30%, but for anxiety, like there's not really a lot of good good medications. So, you know, getting really clear that this is helping so that the, the, then it can be the, the true problem of, you know, what's the obstacle towards changing your diet can be addressed. One person says that their clients complain that problems, life experiences get in the way of their follow through. So that's just yeah. the piece that you were talking about. Yeah. And part of, if I do my job really well, there, some of those barriers will be lowered. It's kind of like if you've ever tried to walk slow, like everybody walks, we're all proficient walkers, but if you walk slow and look at the detail of it, it's actually really hard to walk. And if you know how to do a, your diet and nutrition, it's really easy to do, unless you don't know how to do mm -hmm. it, and then it's really hard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm trying to lower some of those barriers, but first we have to have a reason to lower the barrier. There's another um, comment about the sure. meds, just saying that a lot of times the meds can actually increase anxiety because there's this additional layer of worry about the side effects of the medication. Right, or they help for a short period of time, but because they didn't address the core issue, it comes back and, and then they're on, on meds and and not interested in sex. <laughs> and mm -hmm. now they have that to work for you. So then the last part is also like trying to get, get the, and the, I would really like your feedback now and then if you use this, any feedback you can get. Because I was really, you know, spending a lot of time trying to be like, what is that motivational interviewing piece? Like it's, it's one thing to assess the anxiety, but like who cares if the anxiety comes down? I mean, of course they care, but like what's the, what's the true benefit? Because certainly I, and I'm sure you, have worked with people where there are actually some pretty big incentives to not get well. And there are some consequences to getting well in that, you know, some, some relationships, like I had one woman who really, you know, we kind of went back and forth on getting, getting better and finally she just, she really wanted to have a child and got really clear about that and cleaned up her diet and cleaned up and she came in one day and was like, I cannot stay at my job. Staying in a brain fog and being anxious all the time helps me connect to these people and now that I am not hypoglycemic and, and I've done my wor work with my, she did some really great work with the therapist, like, I don't want to do drama all the time. <laughs> I need to get a new job. And it was so interesting how clear she was about how being hypoglycemic helped her just kind of fit in to her social group, which is why I was like, yeah, I'm not, this doesn't address the, the relationship piece. But I wanted to use this piece to help people identify like what, what's the motivation? Because they're like, well, I just don't want to be anxious. Well, 
And so these are some benefits of not being anxious, is feeling better, having more time. Anxiety consumes an enormous amount of time, and I've seen people who didn't want to have more time, like they liked the, the I don't know, I'm projecting a little, but like there was some benefit to that. More confident, better connections uh, with people and or setting boundaries with people, better connection with self, willing to try new things. Of course, if you're anxious, you're, you don't risk anything. Better able to take care of self and family, better sleep or other things. But really using this segment to be like, what are you trying to get, you know, on the other side of this fence where in a world where there's less anxiety, what, what's going to keep you over there? Because otherwise they're just going to go back. You know, and how do they prioritize themselves? So what do people think of this list? Is there something that I missed? Is this at least a place where you can start that dialogue? There's one comment that understanding this is, a, is hard to flush out sometimes so that they think it's a really good start. One person says they can't wait to use it. And there's another question about what if they want all of these benefits? Right, and there's no score to this. And so they can always say, yes, these are all very important. Or they may say, no, the only reason why I want the anxiety to be better is because I, like, it's taking too much of my time. They could use all of them, none of them. It's to start the dialogue. But the other thing that it does for you as clinicians is if people say, I want all of these and these are very important, then when they're like, well, the problems keep getting in the way, which is why I'm not doing food and I'm not taking care of yourself, then, then you get to have a really concrete conversation about, well, so what does that mean? I mean, do you not have 20 minutes to go to the grocery store and get a salad with protein out of the salad bar? Like, is that really what we're talking about? Like, really problem-solving. Like, how do they get food? And, and the, hopefully the book's going to give you some tools to do that. And certainly the, there's a training that we've put up. I think it came down to about a five-hour training, but there's some information on that, and we're going to continue to refine that, that information. But, you know, having concrete conversation of, like, why are you not taking care of yourself? Why are you not taking taking the time to prioritize this, uh, even though it's really important to you to get those benefits? Um, so that's, that's what this tool is hopefully going to help you with. 